Hi everyone, welcome to the Backstory Podcast at UC San Diego. We're excited to have Ernest Liu with us today. Ernest is an assistant professor at Princeton working on finance, networks, trade, growth, and macro development. Today we are going to dig deeper into the backstory of his research on innovation networks and R&D allocation, which he presented at the seminar earlier today. So welcome Ernest, thanks for being our first guest. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so let's get into it. So, uh, you know, for the audience, uh, what would you say are the main ideas of the paper we uh, saw you present today and the most important results you found? Yeah, the main idea is to have a framework to think formally about how a society or a country should allocate innovation resources across technological fields, across sectors. And uh, so we built a model that can guide us in providing that answer. We use the model, we derive some sufficient statistics that we can take to the data to evaluate our deallocated efficiencies of countries around the world, which needs to be constructed based on the structure of um, citation networks and used to evaluate our deallocation. Um, so the main empirical finding of the paper is to um, show that you know there is a lot of heterogeneity in some countries allocating resources better than others. Qualitatively speaking, social planners should direct more resources to the more central and more fundamental sectors relative to potentially decentralized economy. Some supply societies are better at doing that than others. In particular, Japan is the most efficient resource allocation and moving to Japan's level as a benchmark can improve welfare elsewhere, including the U.S. Yeah, no, it was super interesting and a really cool paper. Um, so in terms of, you know, the backstory of it, how did you get interested in this project, this question, this topic? Yeah, so this project has a long history, but we wrote it very quickly in the sense that um, we started me and my co-authors met in my second year of grad school when we were at an AEA. And um, <clears throat> back then, AEAs, you know, most people go to any AEAs for job interviews. So the talks were actually not very well attended. So I attended a, a session, I believe, relates to some kind of innovation. There were four speakers that sitting in front, and there are five people in the audience. And my current co-author was in the audience and he was laughing very enthusiastically with talking to some other guy in the audience. He was laughing so hard that I feel like, oh, he, signed, he seems like an interesting guy, let me meet him. <laughs> so we started chatting then. And um, that's around the time where we started thinking about this question. You know, people talk about knowledge spillovers, people talk about externalities, but all at a very abstract qualitative level. And there's no framework for us to think about what's the best way to allocate innovation resources in a way that actually has handled to the data. So we have that conversation. That's what, how many years ago? That's eight, nine years ago. But at the time, you know, he barely started working with patent data and only the US. I haven't started working with networks, so we really couldn't write such a paper. So, you know. Then um, that was like second, third year of grad school. Throughout grad school, I, had, I started working uh, a bit more on networks and wrote my job market paper, which is industrial policy and production networks. Meaning, you know, if you have a 
production linkages in the economy and there are distortions and the market imperfections, what would the social planner do? How did the East Asian economy, South Korea, Japan, China, how did they pick the right sectors to support? Can we have a theory to guide that? That was the job market paper. So after the job market, we started talking again in bringing up the ideas of writing this innovation paper, but I still didn't have the tools. He still didn't have the data. So the conversation died. That was like three, four years after we first, we first met. I, I began working more and more on networks and ended up writing some methodological papers that deal with dynamic externalities in networks. So if you do something in one part of the network, there will be long-term effects to other parts of the network. So we wrote that paper. That's a paper with Savinsky. And um, I think 2020 summer, my co-author called me saying, hey, Ernest, I now have this global innovation data. Do you remember this idea? I was like, oh, I just wrote a dynamic networks theory paper that I think have the right tools. So we started working and have the paper very quickly. In <laughs> a couple of months, and we have the paper. That's so fascinating that, so, you know, it's also interesting that you guys stayed in touch, even though there was not the right time to write the paper, but you kept getting some sort of a conversation. And yeah, so it's completely coincidental. I've had many more such conversations that didn't pan out yet. <laughs> Maybe there'll be the papers in the future, I don't know. But uh, yeah, this is a paper that has the longest history, I think. And uh, how did you realize that the toolkit you have, like, how did you make that connection where, you know, th these are the tools I would need, I have it yeah. now versus the actual subject matter? Yeah, so um, I feel I've always been interested in studying these kind of um, policy-related questions from a macro perspective that relates to growth and development. So to, I feel to answer that type of questions, I need to know about networks. And that's sort of the backstory for writing the job market paper. Job market paper is static and dealing with dynamic network requires a, you know, that's a different layer of difficulty because once the spillovers are depend on the network, there are many, many state variables. So things become not tractable. So I put that aside for a long time. Um, this methodological paper that our current paper builds on, that also came out of random conversations. So after grad school, I was doing a postdoc at Princeton. My wife was still in uh, MIT for a PhD, so I had to commute back and forth. So I gave a talk at Yale, I told them I'm commuting, and Oleg Savinsky at Yale said, well, why don't you stop by Yale every Thursday, make it part of the commute, we'll pay one way of the trip. So I ended up visiting Yale once a semester for like, sorry, once a week for one and a half semesters. I would go there in the morning, attend their macro lunch, meet with some students, chat with some faculty and go to Boston. Oh, nice. So that's like part of my commute. Nothing ever came out of that for a long time. Then during, um, at the time, Oleg Savinsky was working with some computer scientists together at Yale in putting up reports for trustees and some kind of initiative at a university level in identifying sort of key sectors of the economy and so on. So the computer scientist, Daniel Spielman, uh, who is you know um, very established person in doing spectrograph theory. So Tsavinsky was telling me, yeah, nobody's using spectrograph theory in economics, but it's so cool and you should learn Daniel um, Spielman's lecture notes and stuff. 
So I actually learned those tools, never thought about using them for economics, but just you know, read them on my commute. Mm-hmm. I think after two, three years after I met Oleg, one day he just called me and said, you know, hey, have you actually learned spectral graph theory? Why don't we write a net? Why why don't we write a network paper using those tools? So we started thinking about building micro foundations that we can use spectral graph theory. The, you know. It's a very abstract tool, so it's hard to see connection to economics. But one thing we realize is spectral graph theory seems to think of networks as you know a fixed structure, but use ways to study diffusion through the network. So it's like if one node gets a shock or gets an intervention, it's going to first affect a neighbor and then neighbor's neighbor in a dynamic process. Mm-hmm. So the study of dynamical system in, in applied math, the modern way to study that is also through similar way, ways of thinking. But at the time, most models in economics about networks are all completely static. So I was staring at those equations in applied math where they have dynamics that keep track of diffusion along the, across the matrix. I was like, how can I write down a micro foundation that have exactly the same equations? So that came about our um, dynamic structure input-output network paper, yeah. which is uh, in our restart now. That's the paper with Savinsky. So we wrote down a paper where there are adjustment costs across input-output linkages so that if, you know, if I get a shock, if I, my productivity improves, it's going to improve my output. In standard models, that will improve your output because you buy from me and your customer's output will also improve. So all the general equilibrium effects happen instantaneously in static models. With adjustment costs, my output improves, but your output will not improve immediately. It will improve slowly because you know, my inputs take time to go to you or it you know, takes time to adjust the amount of input you're using mm-hmm. and you to your suppliers and each round of transmission happens at a future time. And that process is governed by this diffusion-like um, operator on the matrix, right? If the adjustment um, process is very fast, it converges to the static model. If adjustment cost is very large, then the effects stay local for a long time until it, it, it diffuses out. Yeah. So in that paper, we sort of wrote it more like a dynamic production network paper with some spectral tools. And then I realized, yeah, that describes knowledge diffusion process. If you do R&D in one sector, it's going to gen, you know, have spill over to others. Mm. It seems like natural to remodel it as an innovation network paper. And you know, that's the connection. Nice. Well, it seems that these tools and that commute to New Haven was really helpful. Uh, I guess sort of jumping further into the model, I'm very curious to understand what is what is the journey of a model look like for you? You sit down, you write a simple model, then you start incorporating of the more of the complex things, or it comes from conversations where you just talk to people about this is what you're thinking about writing down, and you write it down at a much later stage. How do you think about these things? Yeah, I think when you first start out as grad student, writing down models is much more challenging than when you're experienced because all the models you see, you read in papers, they work beautifully, right? Like everything just falls in place. When you actually write down, so my first few papers, right? When I write down a model, I discover equilibrium doesn't exist because, so that was the paper that ended up being in the JFE. That was my third year paper. We wrote down an environment where there are multilateral externalities. So I'm a lender. Mm. I lend to you, but I 
but you cannot commit not to borrow from others in the future. So knowing that you will borrow from others in the future, I'm going to price my lending to you, incorporating those future debts effect on, on incorporating these future dilution effect on the value of debt. Yeah. But if you're talking to many lenders simultaneously, they are going to be guessing who you're, who else you're talking to and what offer you are making to them. Mm. Turns out that any specification of off-equilibrium beliefs would be super important and equilibrium may not exist. And even the simplest setting of me as a borrower talking to three lenders simultaneously, equilibrium may, may not exist. So like any economic phenomena, I want to write down a model. In, in my third year, I discover some bug that you know, things are not well behaved and random and cannot be solved and either too complicated or too trivial. So that's always very hard. But once, I, I believe, at least for me, after writing a few models and spending a long time in thinking about tweaking these elements so that they all fall in place, it became an acquired skill to have an intuition of when things would work, when things wouldn't, and what kind of pieces will be tractable and how do you put them together. So in the case of these network papers, the dynamic um, structure paper, I was literally looking at the applied math equations that are tractable and think of an economic environment where it generates the same equation, but it's an environment that people haven't studied. Yeah. In the innovation network paper, I look at the same equation, which I now know very well, and feel like relabeling as innovation is extremely natural. So that's the thing which, you know, in this case, writing the model is trivial. Yeah. But yeah. there's a lot of work that's gone into that. Right? Yeah, exactly. I would say. Um, and uh, if writing the model was trivial, uh, my question for you would be, uh, what, uh, what was the main challenge that you faced so far, or the main challenges that you faced so far during the process of writing this paper that you said it's been a long process? Yeah. Yeah, I feel um, a lot of, I would say, these papers are not um, standard types of papers, meaning, you know, just describing the abstract idea in the process of how to write this paper, even that abstract conversation, I may face pushbacks because it's not a very well-defined and clean exercise of I'm solving one open problem that people have solved but cannot. Or I'm doing a policy evaluation where I have a clean shock. This is a, a kind of question that, you know, I think obviously first order, how do you allocate resources, is a question that people kind of have thought of but not at a detailed level. Like, you know, do we allocate more to basic research versus applied research? That's a form of the same question but at a very crude level. And once you talk about innovation policy, people start thinking about all the details of the patent system and firms' incentives that in my presentation, I almost didn't show any. So it's a question that is not so well-defined, at least even if you know the question and you know you can solve everything, there's no modeling challenge, it's not immediately clear how that paper should be written. So the challenging thing I think is in figuring out how to write that paper in a way that people or a very broad audience with heterogeneous taste will still find it digestible. So that's the challenge. And that, yeah, um, that that's most of the Yeah, 
Actually, you mentioned setbacks, and especially yeah. maybe when you have a, a novel idea like this. Um, and uh, this happens in research a lot that, you know, it's highly nonlinear and there are highs and lows. Um, how do you personally de deal with, with these highs and these lows or these setbacks, if you received any for this paper or in general? I have not received major setbacks for this paper, partly because I have received enough setbacks in the past that I kind of know that, you know, they will be overcome, so <laughs> I'm not that bothered with setbacks. But I did receive a lot of setback uh, earlier. So I wrote uh, my drop market paper, which I'm very proud of, the production network paper. Um, but I did not find a junior faculty job on the job market. So that's a major setback. Um, you know, a huge amount of uncertainty. I wasn't sure if I would stay in the US. My wife was still in the US. Do I have to go back to Asia? Do I leave academia? You know, I just don't know what life would be like without a, a job. I took the postdoc and I sort of worked very hard on repitching that paper in a way that um, people find it digestible. And that was very hard, I would say. It was a very uncertain process. Um, but in the end, the paper published well, and the topic became of broad interest. People suddenly, more people are interested in networks and more people are interested in industrial policy. Yeah. So I think, you know, the literature changed in a way that the, the paper became more general interest. I think the difficulty with that paper was industrial policy. So first of all, network by itself was new at the time. So not, not as many people are familiar with tools or how to evaluate those papers. They're very common nowadays, but you know, literature moves fast in five years. Yeah. But also industrial policy was not as commonly um, discussed in academia. Yeah. Partly was because it has a bad rap, it has a bad um, image from older um, uh, literature in the 80s and the 90s due to Washington consensus, free markets, you yeah. know, uh, central planning doesn't work, free market is better, and government shouldn't interfere. So there's a lot of negative connotation with industrial policy. So, you know, in that sense, the topic has been dormant and ignored, and people have prior against the topic. So that's what I experienced, and finding a way to write the paper in a way that people will accept the topic. Yeah. That was very hard, and I think that's the hardest academic experience so far. But, you know... Having experienced that once, I kind of have confidence of pitching other papers, so I don't feel like minor setbacks are that hard to yeah. overcome nowadays. Yeah, that's super interesting. Actually, we were in a macro development class last quarter, and we had a similar conversation about industrial policy, mm. about how it seemed like the literature was not going anywhere, but now suddenly there's a revamp of that literature. I'm curious, in that context where with both networks and industrial policy, it seemed like you had made a decision before this sort of ramp up of the yeah. uh, literature again. Uh, how did you stick to that? Did you get advice that, hey, you should study something else? What I was see. that process like for you? I see. So when I was an undergrad, I was like taking growth classes and I had taken machine learning classes. Those two were the areas I thought was the most interesting. So either growth or machine learning. And I made a conscious choice of going into economics and not CS because I sort of, it 
how government can design development policy to help the economy grow. You know, that was what motivates me to study economics. And I think it, so I, I grew up in China. I went to high school in Singapore, but I would go back to China once a year. And that was a period, I left China in 2002, right? That was a period where every year I go back, I get shocked and how much China have changed, how much China have grown, and it's just a miracle. So I feel like I always wanted to understand what's the role of government, what's the role of policy, how replicable that is to other economies, how are these policy choices made, and you know, those are the motivations of why I took on economics. When I actually got to grad school, I got you know deep in the weeds of repeated games and you know, <laughs> Parts of macro that I don't find excited in and, you know, finding natural experiments, which, you know, all were cool, but not what I wanted to study in the first place or why I wanted to study economics. So I wrote a few papers that are dynamic contracts, um, those, you know, including the multiple lending problem that I just mm -hmm. mentioned. I wrote a few of those papers that were more driven by the classes I took, the papers I read. You know, I wrote those papers and they're fine papers, but I didn't feel as excited about those. And I feel like, you know, I was in my fourth year. Do I want to spend my career working on this or should I maybe do something else with my life? You know, I, I wasn't even set on being an academic. I just, you know, curiosity was driving my decisions. So I feel like if I have to write one paper to decide whether academia was for me, I might as well write a paper that motivates me to be an economist. So I started um, playing with data um, in China. I started playing with manufacturing data and I started, I spent almost a month just reading economist articles to look at, you know, what are the important real world issues in developing uh, economies. Not sub-Saharan sub, sub, sub um, developing, but in developing countries that are trying to boost manufacturing in a way that, you know, modernize. So one issue that caught my attention very strongly was um, the selective privatization of state-owned enterprises. So in the 90s, the entire Chinese economy was run by state-owned firms, and they encouraged entry of private firms, first mostly in very downstream manufacturing, processing sectors, and retail. But gradually, they privatized most of the economy, but most of the upstream sectors are state-owned. Iron, steel, heavy chemical plants, these are state-owned. Mm. I was wondering, like, why that's the case. Because, you know, I had no intuition in how to think about the problem. I just feel I had the prior that, you know, state-owned is bad, it's inefficient. Having inefficiency in upstream is even worse because that would harm the rest of the economy and so on. So I didn't know any network models before, but that observation is what motivated me to study network models. And once I write down a network model, I realize, well, subsidy and supporting upstream sectors using state resources is actually beneficial for the economy as a whole. And that became the job market paper. So that's, and with that, you know, despite the job market outcome, writing that paper has been the most satisfying experience so far in the research career. And I feel like, you know, dissatisfaction in this profession comes mostly, at least for me, these internal, you know, I feel I've answered a question that I feel is important and I feel I answered it well. 
that satisfaction is unparalleled, and I sort of want to keep having that. So I, in terms of picking topics, I'm less worried about its per,、um, perception, but more about whether I would find it、uh, satisfactory. And, yeah, that's super fascinating, and clearly, you know, it works out in the long run, and、I'm, I hope it continues to do so. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate this conversation. It was great talking to you. You were so generous with all your thoughts and the stories. So yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.